Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Ring of Fire, Al Franken, Counterspin, Tom Hartman, Rachel Maddow, and Lachelle. This is Ring of Fire on Air America Radio. I'm Robert F. Kennedy Jr. at the Pace Law School in White Plains, New York, here with Mike Papantonio in Pensacola, Florida. If you want to talk with us on Ring of Fire, give us a call at 866-389-FIRE. That's 866-389-3473. Bobby, we have Paul in Columbus, Ohio, listens on WTPG, 1230 AM. Paul, how are you? I'm hey, Paul. doing good. How are you folks? Look, we're doing good. good. What's the question? If there's a legacy that our current administration could leave uh, for our children, grandchildren, what have you, other than astronomical debt, it would be to somehow redirect our energy to energy. In other words, we spend billions, I don't know, fighting people who don't particularly want to fight us, etc. But the point is, if we could redirect, in other words, going to Mars might be a nice idea, okay? But we would take the same resources and plow that into research and practical applications, uh, we would be leaving um, future generations in a little bit better shape. As it stands, the uh, interests of uh, oil and what have you um, are simply stalling us. And it's embarrassing to say that Europe is stealing a march on the United States. They simply are directing a lot of their um, economics toward renewable uh, forms of energy, and we are not. Yeah, let me plug That's Bobby. Right. Let me plug Bobby's book. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've picked it up, Paul. It's called Crimes Against Nature. It is not just because we do a radio show together. Uh, it is an excellent book, and it covers this topic probably better than any book on the market. Uh, Bobby, uh, what's your response to what he's talking about? Well, you know, energy efficiency is not just good for the environment. It's good for our country. It reduces our dependence on foreign oil. It reduces our vulnerability to price shocks on the international oil market. It reduces the entanglements that we have with, you know, these foreign dictators in the Mideast who who hate democracy, who are despised by their own people, um, and who are financing the terrorism we are you know we're financing the terrorism with our oil purchases right now and that's really the gravest threat to our national security if we reduced our oil consumption it would also give us a cleaner environment and make us wealthier at home right now we spend about 15 percent of our gnp on energy consumption japan spends only seven percent germany spends about the same thing that means that every product that we make uh, costs uh, 8% more at its inception, and it makes us less competitive. And so the best thing that we can do for our economy to make us more competitive in the globe is to be more efficient. Pollution is waste, and we need to eliminate waste and eliminate pollution. So what's good for the economy is also good for the environment. If we raise fuel economy standards by one mile per gallon, we can generate twice the amount of oil that's in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. If we raise fuel economy standards by 2.7 miles per gallon, we yield more barrels of oil than we now import from Iraq and Kuwait combined. If we can raise fuel economy by 7.6 miles per gallon, which is quite easy, we can uh, yield the same amount of oil that we now import from the entire Persian Gulf. We could eliminate Persian Gulf imports in this country simply by a, a, a really a marginal increase in fuel efficiency in our automobile fleet. And that's a much better investment for us 
than the than the, the three quarters of a trillion dollars that the GAO now says that we're going to spend in Iraq. Um, if we spend a fraction of that three quarters of a trillion, divorce, you know, and this was done before, not just by a Democratic president. In 1979, because of Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, we had off fuel economy standards in this country that got us from about 18 miles per gallon, which was our national average in 79, to 27.5 miles per gallon in 1986. And that year, David Stockman, who was the budget director for Reagan, and Ronald Reagan rolled back. They were, those fuel economy standards were intended to get us to about 40 miles per gallon by the year 2000. If we had done that, if we had stayed on that track, if Reagan had not rolled those back as a favor to Detroit and the oil industry, we would have eliminated 100% of Persian Gulf oil imports into this country after 1986. We wouldn't have had to import one drop of Persian Gulf oil. That means that we wouldn't have gone into the first Iraq war, we wouldn't have had troops in Saudi Arabia, and the World Trade Center would still be standing. And We, would we could have changed history by simply making ourselves more efficient, and we'd be a much stronger country, and every American would be richer. You figure this out, um, Mike. I, if I, I switched recently from a 22-mile-per-gallon minivan that I'd been driving for years to a Prius that gets around almost 45, uh, 40, 45 miles per gallon. Well, I'm saving about $1,000 a year in gasoline. So what if every American were saving $500, $600, dollars $1,000 a year? You remember when George Bush gave us all a $300 uh, a rebate on our taxes? <laughs> and, and, he said, sorry. and he said that was, a, that was a national economic stimulus package, and he had to gut the Social Security Trust Fund in order to do it? Well, what if we were all getting three or $400 a year in cash or 500 or or 1000 simply from fuel economy standards? Not just once, not just one year hit. But year after year after year after year, that's a national energy program. It's not only that; it's an it's a foreign policy program. You know, Paul, and it's an Bobby, economic stimulus Bobby, program. Bobby, Paul started the question. I mean, by really raising a really good point, he says we've put a man on the moon. Uh, if you think about it, we've mapped the human DNA. We've landed robots on Mars. American scientists and engineers can do whatever they have to do if they have some leadership. And for the, for, for the shrub to stand up in front of the American public and say that we're addicted to oil as if he's done something to help. If you look at the shrub's record, here, here's the real record, that Bush specifically – pushed for renewable energy cuts in his last budget. Bush did. It wasn't his wasn't his underlings. George Bush pushed for renewable energy cuts. He he rejected a bipartisan effort to to set goals for renewable energy. If you'll remember, uh the, there was a requirement at one point that utility companies would have to generate at least 10% of their electricity with un, renewable fuels by 2020. Well, he did away with that. Uh, we don't know what happened with the secret meetings with Dick Cheney and his his secret energy task force, but we do know this. Here, here's something we do know. We know he were, he refused to meet with a single environmental group. We know that he refused to meet with with he had one 15 minute meeting. He met with every big fossil fuel producer in the country. He had one 15 minute meeting with renewable energy producers, and after five minutes in the White House in the West Wing. He escorted them out to the Rose Garden for a photo op. 
So, you know, as it, as if he it. really and cares. he refused to meet with any environmental group. Now, one environmental group during that three-month process was able to get into those meetings. I mean, he, he didn't even have a pro forma uh, it, meeting with us. There, there was no substance at all. Tell me if there's something I can do. Cause lately all I'm thinking of is you. So I tried to write you a love song, but all the music came out wrong. So I hope that you dance along. Yeah, I hope that you dance along. Uh, GOP pollster Tony Fabrizio said these numbers are scary. We've lost every advantage we've ever had. The good news is Democrats don't have much of a plan. The bad news is they may not need one. And this is this is this is something I disagree with. For, we do we do have a plan. Uh, we haven't we haven't laid it out in a formal way, but everybody knows what we stand for. And I I'm laying it out, and I'm going to repeat. I keep repeating this. Uh, we have 200 and some days of the election. I don't think it's a bad idea to just keep repeating. What our plan was. I call it a contract on Republicans. Um, although they'll benefit from it. Uh, number one is universal health care. Getting to universal health care. And on the first day we're in, immediately day one, insure all kids. It's just right. Medicare for kids. Secondly, restore fiscal sanity. Start by repealing the tax cuts on the wealthiest Americans. And on them only. We are at war, ladies and gentlemen, never in the history of this country, until George W. Bush, have we had tax cuts during a time of war. Number three, corruption. Restore honor and integrity to government. No outing CIA agents. Clean up Congress. Real lobbying reform. Clean elections. Meaning public financing of federal elections. We will save so much money. The American taxpayer will save billions and billions. Four, education. Really leave no child behind. This means uh, more resources for teachers, more teacher training, more. And understand that kids in poor areas, the kids that are left behind, need more resources, not less resources. So let's dedicate the general fund, general tax funds, to education and not rely on property taxes. Because the kids who need it the most live in areas that have low tax bases. I mean, let's not kid ourselves about it. Let's suck it up and really leave no child behind. How about that? Number five. Number five, science. Let's go back to science. Article today in the New York Times about uh, the, the molecular processes that created uh, complexities in, 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 uh, in evolution. Evolution is science. 
creationism isn't. <laughs> Global warming. We know it's happening. The only people, the only scientists, climate scientists who disagree with that are biostitutes paid for by the oil companies. We know that. What does that mean? Research. Research into renewable energy, an Apollo program for renewable energy, folks. And conservation. We're going to have the mayor of this fair city on in just a few moments. And he will be telling us that this Chapel Hill has signed on to the Kyoto Accords. That's right. And, and Mayor Foy will tell us what we, what we know is that not signing on to the Kyoto Agreement is, gonna, is going to damage our economy, damage our world. The dumbest thing this president says, and, and that is a high, high bar. Is that, not sign, is that signing on the Kyoto Accords would ruin our economy? The opposite is true. Over 200 cities have signed on to it. They're finding, one, they're spending less money on energy. Duh. They're finding that they're creating new jobs in conservation, in energy efficiency, in renewable energy. That's the future. I can go on and on, and I will, and I'll do it every damn day. <laughs> Speaking of science, stem cell research. Let's not throw out 400,000 frozen embryos. Let's not toss them in the garbage. These are uh, 12 cells. Let's do adult stem cell research, too. But, but how many people in this country have a family member who has some sort of disease or malady that can be, can be helped by the, the, the stem cell research holds some hope for? Let's tell them that we're on their side. Six, real national security, real port security, uh, secure loose nukes in the Soviet Union. Why aren't we doing that? And how about this? Work with our allies in the fight against global terrorism. Seven, stop lying. Tell the American people the truth, especially before leading us into a war. Eight, fair trade. When we make trade agreements, let's have environmental standards and let's have labor standards so that we're not exploiting working people around the world and we're not hurting our American workers here in the United States. And speaking of our workers, let's make sure that our pensions are secure. 
Let's be on the side of workers and not on the side of corporations. And number 10, a dark chocolate almond joy. <laughs> Why are mounds dark chocolate but not almond joy? I love mounds. I love almonds. A dark chocolate almond joy, ladies and gentlemen. And that will get us the 500 votes in Florida we need. Things seem to rile the elite U.S. media more than those who dare challenge the neoliberal economic gospel that protecting corporations and corporate capital is crucial and protecting human beings is, well, passé. It rarely gets spelled out, but once you know that, coverage of things like the protests in France over a proposed new labor law begin to make a kind of sense. The law would allow employers to fire anyone under 26 without cause if they've been on the job less than two years. If that doesn't sound good to you, then you, like the French protesters, deserve an F in economics, says the Los Angeles Times in a March 21st editorial. The Times describes the law as a necessary effort to restrict generous job protections, thoughtfully explaining that currently, when they feel like firing workers, quote, employers must prove the dismissals are justified, plus pay extensive compensation, close quote. Naturally, then, it's, quote, little wonder that French businesses are reluctant to take on the burden of hiring new employees, close quote. So obvious is it to the times that a guaranteed way to reduce unemployment is to make it easier to fire people that they fault the French students for not demanding that, quote, job guarantees be loosened for workers of all ages, close quote. The notion that serving employers should be government's main job has a corollary, which is that doing so, even though it's wildly unpopular, is a true sign of leadership. That idea is evident in the New York Times' March 21st news article on the protests, which, having made requisite mention of the self-evident need for Western European countries to, quote, loosen rigid labor laws and trim costly benefits, close quote, went on to chide those governments for hesitating in the face of widespread popular opposition. Notes the Times, quote, few have the political will to force those changes on their societies, close quote. So, you see, you fix unemployment by firing people and demonstrate good governance by subverting the popular will. And in the world of elite U.S. journalism, that somehow all makes sense. Alan in Arlington, Texas. Hey, Alan, welcome to the program. Hey, Tom, how are you doing? I am just great, but I'll get better, Alan. What's on your mind today? Well, your previous caller kind of stole my thunder, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change gears to just a little bit, ask you a, a, a single question. Um, in my battles that I have with my conservative friends, I seem to have made some headway with the health care argument. Um, but if you would, you know, they, they all kind of say, you know, this it, it's just socialism. And socialism, the government owns everything. Explain to me, if you would, what the difference is, and I'm, I agree with you, but if, if you would explain the difference, why, why we should nationalize health 
and why we shouldn't nationalize certain other industries. What That's a really good question, Alan. Yeah. That's a really good what question. Let's so Yeah, let's just let's just go through it. First of all, there's a there's a terrible problem with the word socialism. And and that is that it has meant different things at different times in the past. When Karl Marx used the word socialism, he meant and and he used the word socialism in Das Kapital and in the Communist Manifesto and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was the name of the Soviet Union. What he meant was that the government would own all the means of supply and distribution. And that is not anything that I think any rational person is advocating, even in the so-called socialist countries like the Chavez's Venezuela. You know, they, they, everybody acknowledges that private industry, private, you know, capital, capitalism, is a system that actually has some benefit and value to society, and, and when it works properly, can have tremendous benefit and value to society. So then that raises the question, so... so yeah, and so today there are some people like, for example, in Scandinavia and in Sweden, the Swedes, yeah, if you ask them, you know, some of them would say, yeah, we're a socialist nation. Others would say we're a socialist democratic nation. Others would say we're a democracy and we, uh, we chose to be socialist. Others would say we're not socialist at all because the, you know, the state doesn't own the, the means of control and distribution. We just have a really good health care system and really good retirement system. So, you know, it's like the danger of using that word, right, to start out with. Secondly, then you have to ask the question, okay, what is it appropriate for government to do? And which it gets to your question, Alan, about, you know, when, you know, should, should the government run the healthcare system? And the, if you go back to the Constitution or, the, or the, even before that, to the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson and the Def- Declaration of Independence talked about right, the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What are the essential core functions that government should do so that Americans and I think you could generalize this to any government, but we're talking about America, so that Americans can have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think there's a pretty broad consensus that those things that have to do with literally our survival are things that are so precious and so valuable that, number one, they should not be put out to the highest or lowest bidder. They should not be put out for private profit. Nobody should be skimming money off the top of them. Just like, you know, uh, Franklin Roosevelt said during World War II, he said there will be no war millionaires as a result of this war. And he was right. He, he had Harry Truman making sure that that didn't happen. So number, even though the government wasn't making things, you know, but the, the point is, number one, you don't, there are some things that are so precious to us that we don't want corporations profiting off them because we want to administer them. And number two, we want the agencies that administer them to be responsible to we the people. So that includes things like our fire department, our, our police department, the, the, the construction of our roads, the, the construction and operation of our schools, uh, the operation of our traffic system, our air traffic system we've decided is part of the commons. This is all called the commons. In, in many communities across America, and historically across most all communities, it's been water, sewage, and utilities, although increasingly utilities are privately owned, although there's still a lot of public utilities in the United States. They outnumber private utilities, and there are a lot of, an increasing number, not a lot, of private water systems, although they, they are outnumbered by public water systems. But by and large, we've said that these things that have to do with our ability to survive from day to day are the things that we would really rather have uh, an agency answerable to us in the polling place running than a company where, like your health insurance company, you call them up and try to talk to the CEO of your health insurance company. ain't never going to happen. And well, so, I'll tell you, let me jump in here just sure. a second. Um, uh, the, the moral argument, you, you know, I'm uh, right in line with, with, you know, as I talk to my friends, you know, it, it, it really is impacting. They get that part of it. What they come back with is an economic argument. Well, you know, if we, if we nationalize health care, you know, we're, we're going to have, you know, it's going to 40% taxes. It's going to, you know, 
it's going to greatly increase our taxes. My right. argument coming back is, and, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, we're already through Medicare, and, and I think there's a strong overall economic argument for Medicare, but aren't we already subsidizing the, the greater part of the cost for health care? We're already doing that, and it works. You know, tell how much, just from an economic standpoint, would it cost to, to fold in the rest of us to Medicare. Right now, it is costing for every insured person in the United every insured person in the United States on average. When you include all their co-payments, all their deductibles that they actually pay, the actual dollars spent, and the payments for the cost of the insurance, what they pay plus what their employer pays, every insured person in the United States is paying a little over ten thousand dollars a year. It's around ten thousand five hundred and something. If we went now, now let me just back up a little bit. Uh, Medicare operates with an overhead of about 2.5%, between 2 and 3% from year to year. So let's say 3%, worst-case scenario. That means of every $100 that goes through Medicare, $3 sticks to the fingers of the administrators. Private health insurance companies in the United States say, oh, we can, we can be more efficient than 3%. We can do it for 2%, and many of them can. The problem is, though, when you look at $100 going through a private health insurance company, the lowest in the United States is that there is that you know $14 is sticking to their fingers. The highest is in the 30s. So between 15 and 30 percent of that $100, between 15 and 30 dollars, is sticking to the fingers of the health insurance companies. Well, wait a minute. I thought they were more efficient. Well, they are. Well, where's all that extra money going? It's going to pay for marketing. It's going to pay for advertising. It's going to pay for for uh, corporate overhead. It's going to pay for the corporate jet with the gold faucets. It's going to pay the hundred, you know, three three or four million dollar a year salary for all the senior executives and the hundred million dollar a year salary for the CEO. It's going to pay 10 percent of all the profits and dividends to the stockholders. I mean, that's where it's all going. So the bottom line is, if we were to shift from a private health care system like we have right now, which is the most expensive in the world, no country in the world spends even half as much as we do on a per capita basis. If we were to shift from a private health insurance company like, or system like we have right now, which costs around $10,500 per person in the United States, to Medicare, just Medicare for everybody, we could, for the cost of a little over $5,000, about $5,100 per person per year, uh, or per family per year, we could insure basically 100, about 130 million, I think, families in the United States. We could insure every single person in America. It would cut our costs in half, and you would no longer have 40 million or uninsured, because uh, Medicare is so much more, uh, so much less expensive than than private insurance. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And you know, the ironic thing is, is that we're going to get there, but it's the corporations and. You know, the, you know the, the, didn't the, the chair, chairman of GM come out and say, well, we kind of need to do this to stay competitive? That's ironically what may lead us there. But well, it is. It, you know, it really is. That's, I mean, that's I, the biggie. That's, yeah. To me, that's the biggie, and that's where we need to go. Yeah, I agree with you, Alan, and thanks a lot for the call. And, and you know, the, the point well made and well taken. I mean, the, the, there's, more cost, there's more cost for health care than there is for steel in a car, and I think it was a big wake-up call for America when Toyota was talking about building an auto factory down in Alabama, and at the last minute they decided to build it in Canada instead because they didn't want to have to pay, you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars $2,000 per car for health insurance. And it just makes sense. And Canada's health insurance system costs about $4,000 per person, you know, or per family across Canada. We're paying more than $10,000 per family, and, and we still have a bunch of us not covered. from Senator uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton of, uh, uh, I believe, New York. I believe that's the state she represents, the state I used to live in. Um, 
you know what, what I wonder? Uh, I, I'm probably going to ask her about this know-it-all comment that uh, Tom Delay. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> but I don't mind that coming from you. You know it all, but you're a guy. And that's just fine. Al, the senator's on right now. Okay. Senator. Senator Clinton. Senator Rodham Clinton. Senator Hillary. Hillary. Hillary Rodham Clinton. I guess we need one more second. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. I was trying to call her everything you could call her. Is it, was there anything I missed? Senator Hillary Clinton. Hey, know-it-all. <laughs> hey, know-it-all? Okay, well, this is exciting, isn't it? Everyone, everyone's breathless here it's at live. George Washington University. Uh, I was going to ask, I'm, uh, well, let, let's, I think I might ask her about health care, because it seems to be, because I remember... Guys? Yes? Can you hear the senator speaking to Al? Well, we'll see. Senator? Hi, Al, can you hear me? Yes, yes, Yay, I can. Al! <laughs> well, I sure can. Oh, are you over at GW? Yeah, I'm at GW. George. Wow, that's great. Well, Let thanks. me ask you. Say hello, yeah. everybody. How you doing? How, how you doing, everybody? You're, uh... <laughs> now, of course, you knew that because you're a know-it-all. You knew we were at. at... Did you Did you hear about this? Uh, Tom Delay uh, talking to Chris Matthews, saying there's nothing worse than a woman know-it-all talking about you. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Now, I wanted to know, as, since you are a know-it-all. What exactly are the gender differences between know-it-alls? Well, you know, I haven't conducted quite the study on it that some people have. Mm -hmm. But it okay. is my observation that yes. women do know it all but pretend that they don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I see, but he saw through you. Um, uh, I want to ask you about... Uh, well, the Congress is going on, thank goodness, without delay. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you about health care. Uh, Are you sick? No, I'm... I'm thank you, though, for your concern. Uh, I remember when people said, oh, if, if, if uh, the, the Clinton health care plan goes through, we won't be able to pick our own doctors... Uh, you know, uh, you, your care will be rationed. People who aren't doctors will be deciding whether you can or cannot be covered by something. And thank God that didn't happen. Um, I have the feeling that there's a move again toward this. I think there's a consensus in the country. You're seeing it. You saw it in Massachusetts uh, yes, right. yesterday. Um, are we going to be moving toward a model that may not be through the workplace, but may more may maybe that uh, workplace has decided, gee, this is not for us to do, and we should do just universal single payer? You know, um, Al, I think what you saw in Massachusetts was an effort to try to get individual responsibility, employer responsibility, and government responsibility all working together to try to make sure everybody had. Uh, quality, affordable health care. And it is clear to me that we need a uniquely American solution to the challenges of our health care system. Uh, we want to keep our great doctors and nurses and our hospitals going and all the rest of it.
but we need to figure out how to uh, help uh, businesses that are losing, you know, competitiveness and jobs and a lot of hardworking Americans who are losing health care. So I think you're going to see an evolution. And uh, if Massachusetts works and, you know, the devil's in the details, we're going to have to see how it actually uh, unfolds. That'll be a good uh, a good message. The problem is Massachusetts didn't have as far to go as some states. You know, its number of uninsured was already below the national average. And unfortunately, you've got other states, oh, just pick one, like, oh, Texas, for example, where maybe 20 to 25 percent of the people are uninsured. So the gap is much greater. But I'm, what I'm happy about is that after the uh, trauma of 93-94 and all of the you know, uh, back and forth that went on there, people are starting to talk about it again. It is the number one issue people talk to me about. It doesn't matter whether you're a working single mom, you know, at a restaurant that I stop in or a CEO of a major corporation, everybody is worried about health care. Okay, we got a minute left, Uh, a a question here. Better president, who is a better president? Uh, Clinton, uh, Bush. <laughs> and why? You and know, why? You, you always ask the hardest questions. Which Bush are you talking about? <laughs> you see, you got it. It was a trick question. Uh, but I'll go with the second one. I, I have to say, now, don't you, I thought you wanted me on here to plug your book. Uh, you I mean, I, you know, I mean, you, you've been so... Um, you know, so great going around talking about the truth and getting, you know, more good information out there about what's going on in the country that I wanted to, you know, put in my two cents worth for you. Well, I appreciate that, and I can see that you don't want to go out on a limb on this. Well, I don't think, I don't even think it's close, and I, and I don't believe in, you know, taking advantage of people when they're so down you can hardly find them. Okay. A gracious Hillary Rodham Clinton, everybody. <laughs> we'll be right back from George Washington University. Those are some of the stories we're keeping an eye on today here on the Rachel Maddow Show. But every day around this time, we do so enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Today's underbelly political tactic is privatization. Now, privatization is a government phenomenon, right? This is what Republicans and right-wing Democrats uh, like to do to government functions. They like to privatize stuff so that they can be done by private companies for profit instead of being done by the government not for profit. Privatization is a way to govern, but privatization also can be a political tactic because it has real political consequences. It can therefore be wielded like one of the other tactics in the right-wing political playbook. For example, for example, if you are at all interested in voting integrity, uh, then you probably know the name Ion Sancho. Uh, he, it's I-O-N, is his first name, Sancho, S-A-N-C-H-O. He's the top elections guy in Leon County, Florida, and he's a bit of a hero in the voting integrity field. This is the guy who invited computer scientists to actually test the electronic voting machines in his district to find out if they could be hacked. Last year, Ion Sancho uh, invited a computer scientist from Finland to come to Florida, test Leon County's machines. Uh, they were optical scan machines made by Diebold and find out if they could be hacked. The computer scientist who was hired by Ion Sancho found that it was in fact possible for election workers to alter 
vote counts to alter the results of elections without being detected. They could change vote tallies by manipulating these removable memory cards, and they wouldn't be caught doing it if they knew what they were doing. Uh, these were Diebold optical scanning machines. And this was the election supervisor for the county who invited the computer scientist in to see how this would happen. Now, in consequence to that, Ian Sancho is, is public enemy number one for the voting machine companies. They don't want anybody knowing how their machines work. They don't want anybody testing their machines except themselves. They consider it to be proprietary information how their machines work because they're for-profit companies and they're trade secrets, and nobody's allowed to know. We're just supposed to trust them. They're just supposed to seem trustworthy. So Ian Sancho, not a popular guy among these companies. Ian Sancho, because of privatization, because these companies have been allowed to corner the market on how we vote as Americans, Ian Sancho is now paying the price for having been a whistleblower in this field. He needs to get 160 voting machines in his county that are uh, able to be used by the, by the disabled. He's required by law to be able to do that because after the, the, the voting debacle in Florida in 2000, they passed laws about the number of voting machines and stuff. He needs to have 160 machines that are accessible for the disabled. He can't buy them. Three companies are approved to sell voting equipment in Florida. They are all private, for-profit companies, Diebold among them. It's Diebold, it's ES&S, and it's one other company. And all of these companies have said that they cannot or will not fill this order for 160 voting machines for the disabled. They will not allow Ian Sancho to to follow the law in his county and have these machines there because they want to retaliate against him for having done this testing. A spokesman for Diebold actually said they're not selling to Ian Sancho unless he promises that he will not allow there to be any more tests of the integrity of these machines. Now, the overall political tactic here is that these are the political consequences of privatization. When you allow something so central to the way the government functions to be done purely by private companies, to be done purely by companies that do it for profit, then you're at the mercy of those companies for getting that government function done. There, there isn't a government body that's accountable to the U.S. that has public information that is making voting machines. There isn't voting technology that is prop- proprietary to the people. There isn't voting technology in this country that's publicly owned and not for profit that can be used, contracted in by Ian Sancho. You have to go to these for profit companies. And therefore, he's over a barrel. They're saying they don't want you to test us. And we're not going to give you voting machines unless you promise not to test us. And what can he do about it? When you privatize things, it not only has, has consequences for the way our government works, it has consequences for the way our government can or cannot be held accountable. And also, news from outside the bubble from the same source, Britain's Attorney General has been asked to block a criminal investigation into allegations that Britain's largest defense company ran a 60 million pound slush fund to support the extravagant lifestyle of members of the Saudi royal family. What? Attorney General Goldsmith has been asked by government officials to examine whether the inquiry by the serious fraud office into the slush fund is in the public interest. They fear it could provoke Saudi Arabia into pulling out of Britain's largest export contract. Shades of Abu Dhabi. That'd be a good name for something. The Shades of Abu Dhabi, I guess for a Venetian blind company. Well-placed legal sources say the Saudis are becoming increasingly alarmed about the 
British inquiry by the Serious Fraud Office. That's right next door to the Comical Fraud Office, isn't it? I think it is. It's examining how the fund was used to provide Saudi princes and princesses, hey, that's fair, with luxury holidays, Rolls Royces, rented apartments, and other bricks. Statements by the Saudi government to the chief executive of uh, BAE Systems, which supposedly ran this slush fund, said that the uh, Saudi government is unhappy with the inquiry. Yeah, I'm sure Anthony Pelicano is unhappy right now, too. Police have so far arrested five men. Defense officials, like the Saudis, are becoming concerned about the progress of the serious fraud office inquiry, which was launched a year and a half ago with a series of raids on BAE offices. The subject was raised during a trip by Tony Blair to Saudi Arabia last year. That's serious. Tony doesn't screw around. As the government's senior law office, Attorney General Goldsmith has a constitutional right to intervene in any investigation if he believes it is not in the national interest. He has been approached by a British government department. Sources say it's the Ministry of Defense to halt the inquiry. The ministry argues that if the Saudis pull out of Britain's largest export contract, it would lead to the loss of thousands of jobs. The main beneficiary of the secret fund is Michael, no, sorry, is alleged to be Prince Turkey Ben Nasser, son-in-law of the Saudi crown prince. He's said to have been in charge of the orders for warplanes, which have bolstered BAE's profit margins since the early 1990s. He and his entourage were treated to luxury holidays, along with cash payments into American Express counts. BAE, which is British Aerospace, denies that any of these payments were improper. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen. Sometimes you got to give people nice things to get them to buy your, buy your warplanes, you know? Because maybe they don't, maybe they don't really need the warplanes all that much. Maybe they, they're just doing it as a favor, you know, a return favor. Like people do, like nice people do when they're doing nice things. For other nice people. So don't look into that, will you? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get scared. What do you say? In addition to the report about our running a uh, the sixth major extinction in the world. But, you know, not the biggest. I want the biggest. I think that's what humans are entitled to. I think that's... That's the kind of folks we are. Uh, here's a report from also the Times of London. Hey, Rupert, they're, they're reporting news. Can you see about that? Dozens of the world's cities, including London and New York, could be flooded by the end of this century, according to research, which suggests that global warming will increase sea levels more rapidly than was previously thought. It's the first study to combine computer models. I like them. They're pretty. Oh, I see. Of rising temperatures with records of the ancient climate has indicated that sea levels could rise by up to 20 feet by 2100. That would place millions of people at risk. The threat comes from melting ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, which scientists behind the research now believe are on track to release vast volumes of water sorry, significantly more quickly than older models have predicted. Their analysis of events between 129,000 and 116 years ago when the Arctic last warmed to temperatures forecast for 2100 shows there could be large rises 
in sea level. So, learn to swim. Thanks for listening, everybody. This week's shows and the addition of our new contributors is dedicated to the vocal minority, reminding us all that it's important to listen to all views, and for God's sakes, when somebody gives you a piece of good advice, take it. Happy Doctor? Remember, just because they're the minority doesn't mean they're wrong, said the agnostic liberal. Anyways, visit the website, bestoftheleftpodcast.com, for all the ways to contact me, support the show, yada yada yada. Have a good one, everybody.